Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Secret Syllabus podcast. The Secret Syllabus is a production of the Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. I'm sure a lot of you have started college at this point and you guys may have a lot of questions about how to navigate the semester during COVID. So that's where Hannah and I are here to help. This podcast by college students for college students is to discuss everything from body positivity to being active in the causes that matter to us. And this is the class you do not want to miss, we promise. Hi guys, I'm Katie Tracy. And I'm Hannah Ashton. So let's be real. COVID-19 has challenged my mental health. I haven't left my home for seven months and I face an existential life crisis almost every week. And from the calls I've had with friends, I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. Since COVID began, we've all had to completely change, if not scrap, our plans. Up until this day, I've never gone back to planning, and I really have just taken each day step by step. Mm, Yes, I know so many people are feeling isolated during this time. And I know for me, and even my roommate who we've talked about this, we're doing remote learning, and we're also doing remote internship. And then I also work online as you know, podcasting and YouTube entail. And so looking at my day, I really had to plan out my day because everything is done in the same space. Like I am here sitting at my desk, sitting on my couch, sitting at my kitchen counter. And it sometimes feels like I just never get a mental break because when you're normal on campus, you're walking around, you're going to the calf to get lunch with your friends, and then you go to a new class. But now it's just like everything is in the same place. And I usually cope with stress by hanging out with friends and family. But as we know, it's not exactly easy to see people these days. So on top of dealing with the unknown, we've also pretty much had to take a pause on our social lives. Exactly. It's easy to feel that work and school has just blurred into one blob of a day. And that is exactly why we need to find new ways to take care of ourselves while also staying safe. And that's where we turn to our next guest. But before we get into our interview with our amazing guest, we are going to check in with Christian, our on-campus correspondent. Christian is a first-year student at Harvard University, and she's living on campus. And so we wanted to call her up now that she's been in classes for a few weeks and just check in, see how she's doing, see what's going on on campus, and just give you guys another perspective for what college could look like in this semester. Hey, Christian. It's been a few weeks. How are you and how is college going? Hey, um, I'm doing pretty well. College is still feeling good, but academics are hitting me hard. Classes are actually like starting now for real, and it's been a bit of an adjustment to say the least. (laughs) And how stressful has the transition been? The transition academically is probably the hardest, not because the work is necessarily like super challenging, but it's just like in volumes that I've never had before. And so it's like reading whole books or writing like multiple pages for like simple assign like not simple but like single assignments that's been an adjustment because in high school we definitely did not do that much at one time but I think it's kind of been I feel like stress kind of coming in a little bit but I am like this week was my first full week of classes because we started on like a weird schedule and then we had labor day and so it's kind of just been like, I realize what doesn't work. So that's been, I guess, helpful. (laughs) I know what I should not do in the future. And so it's just trying to figure out like time management and all of that. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I just want to reassure you that first year is just 
a wave of so many different things that you're just trying to stay afloat and figure it out. But you know, the tides will calm and you will just surf them. <laughs> I don't know what with this analogy. I really hope so. Have you found that Harvard is encouraging students to utilize any of their mental health resources during this time? Yes. Yeah, so they recently like sent an email about that and like dropped the link to the um, office for like mental health and things of that nature. But whether or not like I don't know whether or not it's I'm feeling it like in the general campus community like it was definitely like dropped in that email we know it's like accessible but I feel like a lot of students are feeling really stressed and really anxious right now especially like the first years that I see like on campus and I don't know if people are actually taking advantage of them myself included and so right now I feel like they're definitely like they've they've let us know that they exist but I don't know if it's like a super pressing like we need to get these kids in like counseling type thing and maybe it should be on that note how are you as a student coping with stress or just feeling overwhelmed yes so how am I coping honestly (laughs) that's a really great question I think that I've found a lot of joy in like hanging out with like my friends or like just like talking to them or like facetiming them and just ranting or just like sitting on FaceTime together studying because like our study sessions look a little different this year. And so I found a lot of peace in that and just like connecting with people. And I think when it does get super, super stressful, it's easy to feel like you're isolated and like you're the only one going through that. And so talking with other people, other people in your classes or like my friends and realizing that we're all feeling the same amount of stress and we're all going through the same thing makes it feel a lot better. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for coming on and opening up with us. We cannot wait to check in with you again soon. Yes, thank you. I am so excited to introduce you all to Dr. Marielle Bouquet. She is an Afro-Latina clinical psychologist who focuses on racial justice advocacy. She has built a huge following on Instagram and uses the platform to provide resources for those who are struggling with their mental health. Dr. Bouquet has a lot of wisdom to share, and we hope you'll find some comfort, guidance, and reassurance in our conversation with her. Let's dive into it. Hi, Dr. Bouquet. We are super excited to have you on our show today. We believe mental health is a very relevant topic for students, so we'd love for you to start us off with the work you do and what inspired you to go into this space. Well, the work that I do is mental health related. So I'm a therapist and uh, all of the work that I do is surrounded around mental wellness in some way or another, whether it's by giving therapy directly to my clients or if it's consulting with specific organizations on the ways in which they can enhance the mental health of individuals within those organizations. It's kind of mental health, everything. And I came into it by happenstance. It was like this is a second career for me. So I actually went into advertising first. I started doing volunteer work, mostly on the weekends because I really wasn't feeling very fulfilled in my job and I wanted something to bring meaning to my life in some way. And so that that was one way that I found that could be useful. And then I also attended my own therapy and my therapist at the moment was like, you would be a great therapist. You need to do this. So I was like, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. That sounds very scary to leave my job that is very comfortable. But I took a leap of faith and then never looked back. That's great. And has being an Afro-Latina influenced your work in any particular way? Oh, my goodness. In so many ways, I, I don't even know where to start. So even like some of the intuition and the empath qualities that I held as a kid, especially when I saw my family or my community undergo distress by way of 
immigration-based distress or distress that was related to the discrimination that we experienced and the distress that was associated with living in poverty. All of that was a part of my world. And I just kept soaking it up in ways that I wasn't really understanding. And I remember just telling my mom when I was like around six, like, I want to do something about this. I want to change this. This feels unfair, right? Like you just know as a kid intuitively, like there's something wrong with this. But I never really knew or had an understanding of the fact that psychology was an arena of helping my people. Like there was a way that I could do it through psychology. And so I think it all started there. But then once I got into my studies and became an Afro-Latina in the academic landscape and understood that there were a multitude of microaggressions that were not only directed at me, but were directed at my community, which I take very personally, (laughs) I was like, I need to make sure that I orient myself around the work for my people. All of that put together made me feel like I have a duty to my community and I have to approach my community from the perspective of I am here, but also from the perspective of and our indigenous practices and our healing practices also matter. And I'm willing to, in a very ethical manner, incorporate them into the work that I do. I'd love to dive into this a bit more because mental health is incredibly prominent in communities of color. So Can you elaborate on the unique challenges of navigating mental health as a person of color? Yeah, the challenges are pretty up there in terms of numbers of challenges. And I think there is the challenge of access, right? Like we don't really have very concrete bridges to access for communities of color. In addition to the fact that we also, for the most part, come from communities that don't really have a positive association, not only with the mental health world, by relegating it to the type of practice that's only for people that are quote-unquote really unwell or crazy or can't really navigate life alone. But also the fact that the health world has actually operated as a system of exploitation for people of color. The people that are in positions of power are not creating more avenues for training and admission into clinical centers. So if we have individuals that have a language capacity, have a cultural capacity, there is a chance that they may get bypassed by someone that is white and doesn't have all of those nuances that they can actually provide to the individual. And so then we have that issue, right? Now we have centers that are predominantly white serving people that are predominantly not white, right? And so we have that discrepancy. So Now, within all of that, then you have people that come into the therapeutic space and look at their therapist and say, yeah, I don't know if I can trust you. I'm actually not going to come back, right? So then we have attrition where people aren't really connecting, either because they just don't feel the connection or feel like they have to work extra hard to really make a point, like, I am being discriminated against. Will you please hear me, right? And so all of that. But also because there is a lot of biases People that are white identified and have not done the work to actually undo those biases that they can actually like bring that into the therapeutic space and cause harm. I mean, there's just a a number of things I can go on and on and on and on about how much we prevent people from not only being in therapy, but also feeling the comfort that a therapeutic space should be creating for every individual that we serve. 
College campuses normally provide mental health resources like individual counseling and group counseling. How do you suggest students make the most of these resources? Students have incredible power. I think students don't know to what extent the power actually exists in the student body. One, you know, it's, I don't think it's very outwardly and overtly relayed to the students. Hey, this institution is here to serve you. You have the power over the institution, even if the institution is rigid and feels like it has this hierarchical structure that has power over you. The student voice, it has like so much within it that can actually be transformative, right? And so students can actually partake in the services. However, if the services aren't serving the student body in the ways that the students believe that it should, students have the capacity to speak to that and speak to the organization about these things and try and make institutional changes around who is hired into their counseling centers. In terms of partaking in the services themselves, I would encourage most students to try to engage in at least a couple of sessions. One, they're free, which is something that you don't find outside of school. Where I went to college, they had like women of color groups. Sometimes if you feel like you are the person that is usually minoritized in your classes, I feel like my experience is very unique and no one really understands me. And that's a part of my conundrum in in navigating this college landscape. So I would suggest like, looking at the list of groups that are available in your college campus and get yourself in community, in a community that's co-healing together. What you said about not relying on your college for resources too much really resonates with me because in my college, one of the most powerful things is the peer community we have supporting each other. We also have an organization called EARS that trains people to listen to others and just be that source to validate them. How would you recommend someone struggling with mental health to talk to their loved ones about it, especially if they feel ashamed? That's really tough. You know, I think sometimes it's important and helpful to, if you have a person that is like your safety person, maybe a friend, perhaps if it's a therapist, being able to role play how you might say it to your family members. And I think it helps to also provide families with psychoeducation which psychoeducation is just basically like providing information that is a part of the psychology world so that people can have that information at their disposal and make decisions that are pro-health decisions or pro-mental health decisions based on having a more nuanced understanding of psychology and its offerings. Because a part of what is going on when a person feels like they can't necessarily more fluidly like come to their family and say hey I'm in therapy you know it's because there's the shame already there and then there's the idea that the person may be unwell and pervasively unwell we think about mental health and psychology and think at the extreme but if you can relay to your family members like I really want to optimize who I am growing to be as an adult it matters to me to be well-rounded And you talked about collective healing earlier. What is the best way we, just as students, can support our friends and classmates when they are struggling with mental health? I think it's a matter of, you know, you can look within yourself to see what makes me feel good and and probably deposit a little bit of that into your friend's life. There are so many ways in which you could say, hey, I'm here for you. Even just sitting with the person is something that can be helpful. Something that is actually really tangible and doesn't require so much is 
If you're like, let's say, in the library, it's going to be different for people now that many colleges are going the virtual route. But even so, you know, you can have like a Zoom where you can have like 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. That for 30 minutes, we're going to do, you know, whatever it is that we need to do for our respective classes. For 30 minutes, we're going to check in with each other, make sure everyone's okay. Are you feeling all right? Are you feeling anxious? Do you feel like you're reaching your goals? You know, and just like do like a check-in with one another, and that can be helpful too. Now that we're talking about the Zoom reality a lot of us are facing, I'd love to talk to you about your work with intergenerational trauma. This is the first time I've heard this term, and I was fascinated because I grew up in a household with three generations. I think it's super relevant because so many students are back home living with their parents, and many of them have to confront this as well. How does intergenerational trauma work, and how can we identify it in our lives? It's a very variable concept. Basically, there are elements of unresolved pain or norms that a person has abided by that has kept them in some sort of a trauma bondage, even if they're not aware of it. Like if you have the the mom that's a yeller and she gets easily irritated and she's always doing things that invalidate you in some way. We don't want to necessarily say, oh, well, you know, that's trauma, so it's a pass. But it's important to understand that that gets translated over to the next generation and then the next generation as well. It becomes really painful, you know, for a family to have to experience like a trauma that has not been resolved by one generation or one individual that falls within a generation and for that to be transmitted. Usually this tends to be not only something that is seen as happening within an individual, but also happening within communities. For many communities of color, we have several histories and experiences within our histories that are marked traumas, right? Collective traumas. And so we're also existing in all of that. Right now we have Black Lives Matter is a trauma that's existing in the Black community and individuals that, you know, can empathize with what is happening within the Black community and anti-Black violence. There is the collective trauma that also comes from what's happening in society that impacts us as a whole. And then there's sometimes the intergenerational trauma that happens by way of what's happening internally to a person or the, the pain that they have held onto that they then transition onto the rest of their unit or you know their, their, their own collective, their family, whoever it may be. I know you also do work with intergenerational healing, and I was hoping you could tell us more about this and how we can all practice it in our lives. Yeah, the intergenerational healing can take two forms. The one that I emphasize the most because it actually is easier to focus on, which is the healing that we do within ourselves and by ourselves. The other type of healing is healing the entire unit together simultaneously. It can often be really hard to do that, to get people on the same page, in the same room, and that sort of thing. However, intergenerational healing can exist by one person being able to emphasize their own healing, their own stability, their own mental health state, and being able to focus on that. And what tends to happen when we heal ourselves is that we also heal others. So we heal back into the generations before us, and we heal forward into the generations that came after us. My healing is also going to have 
a ripple effect upon the ways in which my nephew presents as a healed person in this world because I can talk to him differently. I can express more openness, more love. I have the capacity to have a reflection of how my parents perhaps may have spoken to me in a way that felt like I didn't really feel like I had a voice there, right? There's just like this, this way that language is produced around silencing kids that sometimes we internalize that, right? And so I'm very cognizant of the fact that I needed to heal my own voice. And even though I have amazingly loving parents, but they're imperfect, right? As we all are. And they themselves have the intergenerational trauma and intergenerational norms that have transpired onto them that have relegated them silent as well. And so they then transitioned that onto myself and my sister. And so while my sister and I have worked on finding, you know, our own voice, it's made the relationship with our parents so fruitful because we've been able to say, you can say, you can say this, you know, and open up the channels for my parents to feel like they have a voice. So when I'm unlearning in my generation, then look at everything that's happening around me. Like it's really passed back and it's passed forward and it's even staying with me. So that's why intergenerational healing is so important because it doesn't just heal the person, it heals the whole circle around you. That's an amazing story and advice. So thank you for opening up and sharing about your personal experience with this for us. But as COVID has sent many students home to their families, COVID has also made it challenging to practice self-care. So I'm curious, how can we implement healthy self-care practices into our routines now, even if we're not at school and able to be out with friends? I would say the best thing to do is to try and not overcomplicate self-care. Self-care doesn't need to be like a, something that is fully orchestrated, like self-care day or self-care moment. Sometimes self-care is literally just finding a corner in the home where there's no one for at least five minutes and doing deep breathing. Sometimes it's just stepping outside if it's a sunny day, giving yourself like five minutes to just sit on the stoop or sit in front of your building, wherever you may be, taking the sun, taking the elements, maybe touch the grass or a plant and connect with the earth and, and just be mindful. In, in your moment. Sometimes it's mindful eating, right? Like really savoring the food and just being in your own space, in your own headspace, and you're creating like an aura around you. So it doesn't really have to be a very complicated process because for most of us, we don't really have that option. Even if we have the means right now, there aren't very many options out there for self-care. Like I so wish that I could go to like a theme park but I don't have that option. So, you know, let me like look into little things that I can do on a daily basis. My teas are really important to me. Being able to just like, you know, play with my dog for a little bit. Whatever it is that you can do, that can be a very simple way of just bringing joy into your day can be an act of self-care. I 100% agree. I think simplicity is key and you don't have to go to an elaborate spa or buy $100 face masks or feel like you have to, you know, go out and about to practice self-care. Like you said, just playing with my dogs is something I'm enjoying while being home that I actually don't get to enjoy while I'm at school. So taking a mental note of that. 
Lastly, we'd love to ask, how do you suggest we find community and connection during this lonely time and perhaps lonely semester? I think, you know, if you have it in you and you feel like you want to take community to a different level for yourself, I would really think about being the creator of a community. I recently saw somebody post something about creating like a virtual yoga community and it really spoke to me. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want. I've been totally looking for this. Like I've told myself for the past month, today's yoga day, today's yoga day, and it has not happened. And so to just have accountability partners would be so cool because then I have an opportunity to meet new people, an opportunity to do collective wellness practices with them. I mean, it just has like this (laughs) win-win, like I'm so grateful for the person that created that. And so let's do what we can to create virtual communities and maybe add a little bit of flair to it, maybe a book club, maybe a this, maybe a that. There's just like so many ways that we can get creative around this. So, yeah. Dr. Bouquet, thank you so much for guiding us through mental health and enlightening us about how healing ourselves can also heal the communities we're part of. To all our listeners, you can learn more about Dr. Bouquet on our Instagram at Bouquet, and we'll link it in our show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you and good luck to you both during your upcoming semester. Well, that was an interview I didn't know I needed, but certainly did. I'll be home with my family for the next few months, so this is a great reminder that adult figures in our lives are also humans who are imperfect. And intergenerational conflict is a two-way street. I will have to admit there are ways I don't help, but now I realize I can help heal with them too. That's amazing. On campus and off, it can be really hard to discuss mental health with friends and family. And on top of that, finding a therapist can be really tough. But we need to remember the importance of breaking the stigma, nurturing ourselves, and providing a safer, more open space for others to share their experiences. Exactly. And we hope you all will take Dr. Bouquet's advice and find some comfort in these times of solitude, whether that means healing with your community, practicing a new hobby, or just doing deep breathing exercises. So a huge thanks to Dr. Bouquet for taking the time to come on the podcast. We are so appreciative of all the incredible work you do. We are your hosts, Katie. You can find me at AlohaKatieX on Instagram. And I'm Hannah. You can find me at Miss Hannah Ashton on Instagram. The Secret Syllabus was created by The Female Quotient in partnership with iHeartMedia and co-produced by The Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. The Female Quotient is committed to advancing equality and elevating women from college campuses to the corner office. You can find out more at www.thefemalequotient.com. See you after class. Bye.